Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am your host for this week, TJ Hafer. We have joining us on tonight's panel, Austin Walker, EIC of Waypoint. Hey. And our uh, friend Brian, he is Chef underscore Lou underscore Boo. He is the <laughs> manager of the Battle and Brew in Atlanta and a uh, Three Kingdoms uh, internet-related personality. Does that, is that about... Uh... Yeah, that nailed it. You yeah. got it. That's good. Hey. And... Uh... Number one Zhang Fei fan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be me. Uh yeah. No. And uh as as often, uh our very own Games Beats Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And the reason we have this particular panel here is because we are going to be discussing the Three Kingdoms period of ancient China, particularly as a setting for strategy games. We have Total War Three Kingdoms coming up very soon, but there's also a long back catalog of uh, of games that have kind of been set in this era and have featured characters from this era. But just to get started, uh, how did how did all of us uh, nerdy Westerners get so into this little specific period of Chinese history? Uh, Brian, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, sure. I uh, I mean, I grew up uh, playing the Dynasty Warriors games and the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games um, on emulator. When you know, when emulators first came out, um, back when you had to download them from like Napster, and you got all the ROMs, and I got the Three Kingdoms games, and I started playing those, and I just thought it was like this really cool thing. And then I saw Dynasty Warriors, and I recognized the names being the same. And me and my brothers grew up playing them, uh, like all of them, religiously. And so I just became uh, a huge fan of it, and I've been following it ever since, and reading the books, and following the the different uh, translations and and scholarly works about it. And I just love it. I love it a lot. I got tattoos of it. What tattoos? Uh, I have a uh, I have two uh, a mural. My entire left arm is a sleeve mural uh, depicting Lu Bu versus uh, Liu Bei at the uh, Battle of Hulao Gate, and then I have the Chibi River battle between Sun Jian and Cao Cao's forces uh, on on the arm as well. But they're kind of interposed against one another. True, two true high points uh, in the early in the early years of of the, the era. You, you, you know, you got to send us pictures so we can use that as our uh, our background <laughs> on the website. All right, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> so, Austin, how about you? Uh, same thing, right? Like, I can I, I remember picking up uh, *Romance of the Three Kingdoms* four from a local game shop uh, used, uh, and you know the the uh, retail guy working was very much like trying to shoo me off of it because I was very young and it seemed like a very complex strategy game. And you know, I guess all said, especially for someone who's playing games on console, it was more complex than anything I'd played before. Um, and, and likewise, you know, it was one of those things I, I returned to now and then, uh, but then didn't really get into it really until Dynasty Warriors 2, and then really, really, really fell in deep with Romance of the Three Kingdoms 8, which was the point at which I started needing to learn and read and try to understand, like, okay, well, is this, is this a book? Is this history? What is this? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, thankfully, this is also the period of time during which, you know, uh, I could just begin to read about stuff on the internet go to the library and like and and deepen that connection and go to message boards and kind of dig into what was uh, already a growing community of people who loved this this setting and this time period and uh even even beyond just what was in the games you know gotcha rowan what was kind of your entry point what drew you to this it's somewhat similar um although there are a few weird little things that i think are kind of funny uh but 
first of all, like I have always been a computer game player. Like I got a PlayStation and a Dreamcast, but they were not like my main things. But I just sort of randomly at some point in 2001 entered a contest to win a PlayStation 2. And I won the PlayStation 2. And so it showed up. This is my first year at college. And, you know, another guy who had a PlayStation 2 is like, okay, you have to play this. And he gives me Dynasty Warriors 3. And yes, I did have to play that. Like, I played the hell out of that for quite a while. Um, and being at college, I was able to be like, okay, this is based on a book. I'm just going to walk to my college library and get the book. Right. So that was uh, pretty serendipitous in, in some ways. Um, and reading that made me realize that I had actually been playing it earlier with this totally random, tiny little PC fighting game called Sanguo Fighter. Uh, that I had no idea was attached to anything. I just like had vague recollections once playing Dynasty Warriors of you know Zhao dude with his eye patch, and I was like, yeah. "Didn't I fight a guy with an eye patch?" In this, <laughs> you know, there are three fighting games on PC in the early '90s, and that was one of them that I played on shareware, and I still have like barks from that stuck in my head. Um, and so from there, it went on to, you know, the Dynasty Tactics games. I think I had played, like, ROMs of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games, but they never clicked. But I did a little bit more. I don't remember if it was seven or eight that I spent the most time with, but we could figure that out uh, as we go. Um, yeah, I loved the Dynasty Tactics, and then I poked at other other things, like uh, John Woo's Red Cliff, was, right, which right. was occasionally great. And, uh, mm. you know, I'm getting increasingly <laughs> excited about... Um, Total War Three Kingdoms. Uh, the Dynasty Warriors movie is coming out, y'all. Really? You didn't see the trailer for the Dynasty Warriors movie? Oh, dear. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, my God, y'all. They they got some really great actors doing the martial arts, and uh, I'm just hyped. I've been watching. I've been following it third hand through some bad Google translations. I've been looking at <laughs> cast photos. I'm so excited about that. Does, this, does it look like it's going to be legit, or is this going to be like the Street Fighter movies? No, 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 no. They spend bonkers money on this this is a chinese studio doing this film okay uh, like wushu wuxia style and it's like they're putting in change it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty ridiculous like even the trailer the trailer is very short it shows uh guan yu uh, uh you know activating his musu basically they can channel their <laughs> they, the way that they describe it is that they they are warriors sent from heaven and that they're blessed with superior fighting skills and power and so you see guan you basically split an entire boulder in half just with like a, a halberd strike and it's just like nice i i don't even like them i got chills like i'm a <laughs> hater i still got chills i was like oh i gotta see this movie <laughs> right i mean we're so deep in right that's the thing is like there's a point at which and, and maybe maybe the two of you can or the three of you can can speak to this a little bit but like there is being a fan of this stuff is a really strange thing, and it's one of those fandoms that maybe doesn't make you defensive, but it can make you dig in and make you very, like, fuck it. Like, I care about this stuff. I'm not going to pretend I don't. I'm going <laughs> to hear people talk shit about Dynasty Warriors all day. I'm going to know that I'm the only person I know who's ever put double-digit, triple-digit hours into Romance of the Three Kingdoms games. I'm definitely the only person who knows like that there are more than three empires, uh, three dynasties involved uh, when all said and done. Uh, three major ones, that is. Uh, and And that's okay, and it makes me want to commit to even even when a bad game comes out that is related. I'm like, all right, let me boot it up for at least five to ten hours <laughs> to see if it's how bad it is. I'm looking at you, Dynasty Warriors Nine. 
Ugh. Have you gone back since they patched a bunch of it? No. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I'm on the subreddit sometimes, and you know, it's like, everybody <laughs> accepts that it's like, really bad, but yeah. like, a lot of people are just dedicated to going through the patches and like, really trying to make the best out of it. It's like, you know, it's commendable, because like like you said, I've never met another Dynasty Warriors fan or Romance of Three Kingdoms fan who gets belligerent or defensive. Like, right. mostly we just self-deprecate, mm-hmm. and then we just work, as, we try to sell it as a, at the best of our ability to other people to see if they could enjoy it. Yep. Yep. Uh, so this is actually appropriate because this is sort of a, a semi-sequel to the podcast we did last summer when Imperator was announced about Roman video games. And so it sounds like Dynasty Warriors 9 is the Rome 2 of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's bad, Rome. Have you not seen it? Have you, do, you not, do you know the pitch on Dynasty Warriors 9? I mean, I guess yeah. like, maybe I should be asking a broader question. Do you know the pitch on, on... Listener at home, do you know the pitch on Romance of the Three Kingdoms as a setting and Dynasty Warriors as a game? Yeah. And, Let, uh, let's go big picture. Okay, so, you know, I, I almost feel like I should hand it over to our amateur historian, actually, uh, but here's, my high level is, is it is, a, it is a time of warring states, it is a time where lots of different people uh, either have or, or create uh, a claim on leadership of uh, ancient China, and are, are competing uh, and combating and, and uh, you know, uh, plotting against each other and performing great heroics and terrible misdeeds uh, in their attempt to unify all of China under their banner. And this period goes on for multiple generations um, and spans, you know, a, a huge amount of territory, which is something I think that's under uh, misunderstood. Um, and I'll say really quickly, Dynasty Warriors 9 tries to communicate that, that huge expanse of territory, because China is big, uh, in a way that no Dynasty Warriors game ever did previously, because it's kind of an open world <laughs> game, and the open world is... China, it's 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 huge and it's such it's so mangled and uh, misshapen and uh, unimpressive. Yeah, I was gonna say the 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 Rome two to to Dynasty Warriors nine thing actually has another parallel in that Rome two is another game where people keep saying, "Have you gone back and tried it since the <laughs> yeah, patches?" No. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's what I meant. There, the people really wanted that game yeah, to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, yeah go ahead, Brian. I think Brian was about to say something. Yeah, I just Dynasty Warriors not like like Austin was saying about the scope of China, right? Like the scope of Red Dead Redemption is like Montana, and the scope of the scale of the of the territories in China is China. It's fucking enormous, like it's insane. And they're like, okay, we'll do open world, but we'll do open world instances where they're like, you know, eight square kilometers, and and it just it just really falls apart badly because it doesn't, it really can't. You can't illustrate the fact that you're trying to cross a mountain range into Mongolia to fight some dude you've never actually met before who slighted your cousin 15 years ago. <laughs> but that's the best part of all of this, right? Like, I mean, maybe it's not the best part, but like, I, for people who don't know the Three Kingdoms and who, who don't know the ways that it's depicted across games and fiction and everything else, it's like, there are so many, it, there are ways in which it feels like an anthology of stories. Certainly there's the big act actual plot, the ways in which the, the three major kingdoms that, that people know well, the the the, the way and the shoe, uh, you know, combat against each other and, and, you know, sometimes team up to take down, you know, despots and sometimes are, are you know, underneath some other commander or uh, fall away entirely and are, are left to a, a terrible son who doesn't know left from right. Um, but what there often is are these things that you find across a lot of 
um, kind of uh, epipoetic and and mythological storytelling that are small vignettes uh, that are related to this person or that person trying to get revenge or this person falling into love or this person repaying a favor. Um, they're, they're, they're not stock characters, but they, they often have a stock character quality to them. Where they enter the screen or the stage or the or the the page or the, you know whatever for some period of time so that they can communicate something that may or may not have a good moral, um, but but then moves on and maybe they'll reappear in a few hundred pages, you know. Um, and there is something really compelling about the that part of that way of understanding a period of history, and it makes good games because in the case of the good Dynasty Warriors games, you can really zoom in on a certain character who maybe is important in their own life and in the life of other very important people, but who does not necessarily have a huge impact across the breadth of the war or the breadth of the period and tell their little micro story, or and especially in the strategy games, you can use the fact that the that the fans are already used to the sort of interwoven, almost systemic aspect of that of this moment in history to give them a palette to tell their own stories with. And that's why for me some of the some of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games are the this like they were so uh, important for me to understand systemic storytelling, the ways in which a minor, you know, minister in in some you know long, far distant uh, kingdom could end up impacting me halfway across of China because he made a deal or signed an alliance or whatever. And and it was also an early game for me that made me start thinking about strategy games as needy, as as being places where characters could exist, unlike something like Civilization. The Romance of the Three Kingdoms games have almost always, as far as I know, always had the idea of characters. Even if you're, if, if you're only playing as uh, you know, the, the leader of a, of a faction, you have characters in your employ who are doing things for you. Uh, they are not just like, they are not just like, this is a soldier unit. They are often, this is a soldier unit who has this particular set of skills, or this is a, a, a strategist, or this is a diplomat, or this is someone who might be a wizard. It's hard to tell because <laughs> that's how these stories go. So, uh, Romance of Three Kingdoms 8, the one you played the most, that's the one where you could just be, like, any character, and that one was the one that really focused on that role-playing yeah, side so of it, right? Seven, seven, eight, and ten are my favorites. Yeah. Ten is probably my favorite. Um, and, yes, seven, eight, and ten, they let you stop uh, step down from trying to be, from being the sovereign of a, of, a, of a particular kingdom, and instead let you be, you know, someone who's in the employ of a sovereign, someone who's, who's you know, maybe they're, you know, maybe you do have big picture goals, but it's something like playing a duke in uh, Crusader Kings 2, right? Where you're like, all right, I have my goals, I can work on my goals, but if my lord, you know, rings the bell, I ha- literally have to come running. And the thing that Romance of the Three Kingdoms 7, 8, and especially 10 do really well is making you want to really stand out among your peers and making you want to be the fucking best person in your kingdom while simultaneously making it clear that you cannot do it by yourself. You could be the best warrior in the world. I, you know, Lu Bu knows this well. Like, y- you cannot unify China on strength of steel alone. Um, and that game does that so well. And it's, it's like my number one game I wish more people had played. I don't remember if I played 10. I definitely played play 10. 10 is definitely good. the best one. 10 is definitely the pinnacle of the was, series. Was that, a, was that on PS3? PS2. PS2, yeah. Okay, but yeah. maybe I did play it. It came out yeah. at the end of the PS2 life cycle, and it was just like, I mean, it crushed. It was so good. Austin has sort of talked about the, the kind of folklore 
uh, legendary component of this, but there's also another appeal to the the Three Kingdoms story that is the sort of civil war um, narrative that like you go to read about actual civil wars or fictional versions of civil wars or even something like a Game of Thrones, which is a fantasy civil war that's sort of based on Wars of the Roses. But uh, these narratives always have like certain certain traits in common lots of betrayals lots of gray areas in morality lots of different characters who are kind of like interacting with each other in various places that you don't know if they're going to be important or not and then you know 300 pages down the line suddenly they're the chief villain when they are just some rando uh and like these things are really good at kind of attaching themselves to the uh, the serialization part of the brain that wants you to be like, I need to know more about this. I need to know more about everything. I need to get as deep into this world, these games, as I can. I need to have every tiny, every last tiny bit of it going along with it. So despite the fact that this is just a totally random period of Chinese history, uh, it has this appeal that hits on so many different forms that like it's pretty it's maybe not easy to see why it would have become popular but when you trace it back it kind of makes sense oh this is hitting the people who are into this and this and this and this and you know i'm someone who is always into that like grayscale morality that grand sweep of history stuff i'm the guy who likes the silmarillion more than lord of the rings uh <laughs> like this is this is something that gives me a lot of joy, and in addition, you have all those character vignettes, so it's it's hitting multiple things that uh, both make for good games and just good storytelling. Totally, I mean, I think the thing you're getting at is this, like, pardon, pardon Voltaire, but if Romance of the Three Kingdoms didn't exist, we'd have to invent it, right? Like, we would have, we would find that moment in in history, in fiction, that allowed us to play these games that could at the same time could either offer you here is a wizard on a hill who's changing the weather maybe or could offer you um uh, you know interlocking stratagems and uh backstabbing you know uh uh imperial uh politicians right um it is it it felt like to me as a teen coming to this series and coming to coming to this this uh kind of special subgenre of games focused on this period of time like nothing else available at that point. And um, that's largely because I fell off of PC gaming. I know that there were PC games at the time. You know, I kind of had my PC gaming earlier in my life and then dipped out when I didn't have money for a computer and then came back in my late 20s, mid, mid to late 20s. Um, but, like, for that period from... 14 or 15 through 23, 24, 25, this was one of those subgenres that could offer me that feeling, especially because gaming, especially on consoles, game, game publishers were like allergic to the question of history, yeah. right? Their games, pre-Assassin's Creed, we didn't see that many historically set games that were not made from Japanese publishers, honestly, or, you know? Or World War II. Or World War II. Yes, fair. The two time periods. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Samurai, yeah. uh, uh -huh. Ancient Chinese War, and World War II. That's it. Yeah, there's a lot of dead time there that they did a whole lot. <laughs> like, oh, it's weird. So, TJ, uh, yeah, you've come to this later than the rest of us. Well, I, I, I played, I think, my, the very first 
uh, Koei game I played was Dynasty Warriors 4, but I didn't actually own a PlayStation at the time, so it was like something I played at friends' houses, um, you know, when, when I would just go hang out with them and say, hey, what, what games do you have that I don't have? And then I kind of looped back around on it after Total War Three Kingdoms has been announced, because Total War has always been one of my main jams. Uh, and I, I kind of went through like a very strong immersion period where like I was I was listening to the podcast. There's a really great Romance of the Three Kingdoms podcast that's just called Romance of the Three Kingdoms podcast. If you want <laughs> a guy who really knows what he's talking about to like walk you through the novel kind of step by step because uh, the text is a little bit dense and he just kind of summarizes the major story points, which is cool. Um, it was it was kind of just like in later in life discovering this whole sweep of Chinese history that I had never looked into before, and it felt very similar to like when I first discovered the history of the Roman Empire, and that was a huge thing that I got way into in like high school and college because um, it's it's so different and so complex, and it has all these dynamics at work that are um, very distinct from what you see in in other areas of the world and with the three kingdoms and specifically even different from what you would see in other time periods in the same era or in the, the same geographical location. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a three kingdoms newbie. It's been within like the last two years that I've really taken the dive into it. I've actually never played any of the R3K strategy games, uh, strangely enough, but it sounds like 10 is the one I should check out if I, uh, I want to correct that in a hurry. Some of the more recent ones are, are solid. Like uh-huh. I, I don't want to. I if for, to some degree, I've always been careful with my recommend. Like so, eleven is really good. Also, um, twelve is is pretty good. The thing that I get from ten is that flexibility in terms of how high up I want the camera in terms of the kind of strategic focus, right? Because you can literally play someone who becomes very good at building walls. That is what you do is every day at the beginning, the way 10 is set up is that there's a monthly or quarterly council, or maybe it's seasonal where your Lord, if you're not playing a Lord, you are given tasks and they say like, okay, fix up the wall uh, in the next, in the next quarter. And you go and do that. And then you have other free time. And so it's like, well, I could just like, I could go around and do favors for our allies and see if I can build a relationship with them. I can, go try to talk to um, you know uh, officers from a rival kingdom and become good friends with them and try to convince them to switch switch masters or even convince them to betray their master in the middle of combat. I could go and duel someone in the imperial capital or debate them because there's an entire debate system. Listen, Romance of Three Kingdoms was asking you to, he was asking people to debate it way before <laughs> it was a meme. Um, uh, whereas whereas the, the, other, the other games in the series that are not, that do not have that flexibility are really focused on resource management on the unpredictability of your officers you know you might assign a task to them and it might not come out the way you want it to you'd say like you know i was going to say zhang fei but we know zhang fei is great at this uh uh you might say to a mediocre military officer hey get my people into shape to go to war and then you at the end of the the kind of period they come back to you and they go uh yeah sorry the troops didn't learn that much this you know this season um and so but as a as a commander you were just kind of like top down high level control um and i was always more the person who wanted that flexibility and so that's why 10 really stood out for me 
I think I think to a point that that is important is that that is all that sort of interacting with your regular man or your scholar or your banker or whatever. All that stuff is isn't in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's in the historical records of the of Three right. Kingdoms. Soldiers don't bankroll wars. Uh, <laughs> nobles do. And so to the point of which like merchants came out and the first merchant who gave uh, Cao Cao was trying to sell all of his family's estates to raise an army and his dad's like, you don't fucking have anything, dude. And so he <laughs> sought out the richest noble in his town. <laughs> and he was like, dude, I know you're a good dude. I want to save the kingdom. You know, I will do what's necessary. And he says, you know, I like you. Here's a thousand, a small donation of a thousand gold coins. Go raise an army and 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 kill Dong Shuo or whatever. And so there is there is all of those small things where these people or these 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 what you consider nobodies in the the grand scheme of things come out of the woodwork and really make a huge impact on the story. And they're what keeps the story moving. It's it's mm-hmm. it's all that stuff. I mean, you bring up something here, which is which is. Um, there are again. There are all these little stories inside of it. I'm curious, Brian. What is your like? If you do you have one standout moment or story or character or something from from Romance of the Three Kingdoms? Um, I know it's uh, a big question. I yeah, know that's that's. I mean, uh, big stories for me. Like I, I really focus on on the characters that I really like, obviously, and so I, I feel like uh, for the way that Dion Wei, uh, Dion Wei was. Sao's bodyguard and the way that he went from being basically just a big brawlery kind of bandit uh, to being the most respected dude in Sao Sao's like personal entourage was a really amazing story. He dies for Sao Sao, uh, spoiler alert, uh, and like <laughs> he he literally like dies keeping people from killing him in a in a burning castle, which is pretty amazing. That's pretty um, good. That's and, pretty and, good. And the way forces have a lot of those stories because Sao Sao didn't really give a shit about nobility when he was choosing people who can kill for him. He really Really was just looking for like the peak dudes. So people mm-hmm. like uh, like Shu Huang uh, was a bandit. Uh, Tian Wei was a bandit. A lot of these dudes were just like, this is the baddest dude in town, and he was putting together his his uh, what's the film with all the. The Expendables. Actions. Yeah, Salsa <laughs> built, built his version of the Expendables because he's like, I don't need someone who can sweet talk a noble. What I need is someone who can punch a hole through another man's skull, <laughs> and so that's what he got, and that's yeah. what he went around recruiting. Well, and I, I think that's another reason that this is such an interesting s- setting for games, and even particularly strategy games uh, that we haven't quite touched on yet is this idea of flexible allegiance where a lot of, a lot of other historical settings that we see pop up in strategy games a lot, um, you know, that have larger than life characters at the center of them, similar to how three kingdoms does there. There's some sort of ideological divide or even, you know, some sort of ethno linguistic divide that would prevent people from, moving between allegiances as fluidly as they do in this kind of post Han, you know, Chinese cultural sphere where really it's, you know, it's not a question necessarily of ideology. It's not a question of like one group of people migrating in to displace another group. It's really just who's going to be in charge is the main conflict, uh, which kind of allows a lot of mobility between, you know, convincing somebody just to defect to your side and, and, Things like Brian was saying, where you, you just go, you know, recruit a bandit out of the countryside and, and try to go full meritocracy with stuff. And but uh, yeah, and and, and uh, Total War Three Kingdoms seems to be really embracing that too, which I think is going to be very cool. 
Yeah, I want to add something just because I've I've seen the total war system of flexible units and flexible leadership and and how you're able to send spies and how you can commit convince people to join you and stuff. And it's also important to note that like some of these dudes were completely like uncorruptible to their to their thing. They took like their you know the 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 swearing of brotherhood that uh, Zhang Fei, Guan Yu, and, and Liu Bei take is like, is literally when they say on death, they mean on death and they're not fucking around with that. And so, like, for us, it's it's one of the things where it's like a hard for modern people to understand the concept of like no when i say on death i fucking mean it and that's how they are and so like i love the idea of like flexible people like chin gong who who started with sao sao and then went to lubu uh, and people like that who are flexible and who you can manipulate and then also you have these stalwart beacons of their people who literally are like unmovable and and the idea of treachery just fucking like incenses them all right, like, we, we need to take a moment here and recognize <laughs> that Brian just said something that seemed almost positive about the three brothers. <laughs> I, I listen, I can, I can admire aspects of their relationship. <laughs> I see. I without. see. We're... We're about to we're about to get into discussing kind of the difference between the romance and uh, what actually we have record of that happened historically. So why don't we? Why don't we go ahead and let you loose? Why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, why the Shuhan are not the good guys of the Three Kingdoms period? Sure. I love doing that. That's like my highlight of my day. Um, <laughs> let me get some popcorn real quick. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I listen, Liu Guizhong, the, the writer of uh, the, the writer of, uh, of the Three Kingdoms, the romance, uh, really, really loved the, the Shu. He might have, it's, it's thought that he might have been descended from them. And also his lord, the, the guy that basically bankrolled him, this was also a big fan of the Shu and was also possibly descended from the same sect of the Han. And so they all had a huge uh, Shu boner for, for that. And that, so they're written incredibly positively. And they are, you know, iconic for, for the things that they did in, the, in, in that strategy. Atmosphere. But uh, the concept of good guy and bad guy in, in the in the 200 to 380 China period is kind of dumb. Like it's really not. <laughs> it's not something that we can really uh, make a point on because uh, this is. A country where the leader, the emperor, doesn't know shit about anything that's going on. And then three, at the time, three major factions arise and they all say, no, we speak for the emperor. And they all, and here's the thing that, that the Three Kingdoms podcast talks about really well that I love is that every single one of them motherfuckers was going, oh, we have the emperor's blessing and I have a secret scroll I'm not going to unroll that tells me <laughs> you that the emperor said that I can kill you or you have to follow me and I'm not ever going to open this fucking scroll but i guarantee you it's from the emperor and the trust emperor, me yeah trust me and the emperor is sitting in his throne room in his little uh, carriage or whatever because it was a kid at the time uh at the, at the time this all pops off he's like eight and duong has got a sword to his chest it is like you're gonna follow me dude and so the the i don't like the shoe because the shoe speak and preach benevolence but at the end of the day, Liu Bei was willing to sacrifice anyone to get what he wanted, just like everybody else. The only difference is Cao Cao said openly, I will do evil before someone does evil unto me. And the Wu were too stupid to know anything. Uh, they were like, 
<laughs> I'm attacked. Jesus Sun, Christ. Sun, Sun Jian was a guy who he's a great fighter. Great fighter. I'm getting but he's da, his dad was already like a, a kind of a noble guy. And they were known in the courts. And Sun Jian had beat up some pirates early in his life, and so he had good standing. And so when all the commendations came down for killing the yellow turban uh, yellow turban guys, uh Sheng Bao and those dudes, uh they were like Sun Jian's dad went to the court and was like, Hey, can my son uh you know, can my son get some uh, some stuff? Can I get a, like a like a thank you note or something? And so they gave Sun Jian a bunch of land and a bunch of territory, and then he died, and then his son died. They had an, they were all allergic to arrows, uh. and they uh, the whole fucking <laughs> family line got wiped out. Oh. And, and it was like the Sun family. I, I swear to God, it's like it's like Naruto without any superpowers. <laughs> like they're just out there being dumb yeah. and fighting everybody that comes near them. Uh, but I don't think that there's a whole lot of difference in my mind between the shoe and the way. Uh, I think that ultimately both Cao Cao and Liu Bei were willing to do what they felt like they needed to do. The only difference was that because Cao Cao ended up being the emperor's bodyguard, he uh, had the he had the biggest section of the land, right? And he had the backing of the noble court. Uh, you know, post eunuch period, he became that person who was basically the strong arm of the emperor. And so he was set up from a position to win from the jump off. He didn't unify China in the end, as as I think everyone on this call knows. But but I think that it's, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't see a lot of difference between them other than one was successful and one was not. Well, so there's there's like three or four different kind of um, stepping stones here of how we understand the three kingdoms. So there's the actual events, right? There actually was a civil war in China, and we have some of those records. Um, and then in about 1400, over a thousand years later, uh, this guy decides to write the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Well, it's translated as the Romance of Three Kingdoms often, although the version I have says that it really shouldn't be because it's not a romance, but uh, the Three Kingdoms novel, or Romance of the Three Kingdoms, as it's usually known, uh, which becomes sort of the dominant piece of literature about this. And it's done with a huge propagandistic, for whatever reason, uh, slant towards the Shu Han. Uh, the, the version, the intro to the, the books that I have talk about and this is a thing that i really like uh, it's just sort of like a literary framing but they talk about how guan yu is the protagonist of this novel because as long as you know what guan yu is doing you know what's happening just like overall uh and i think that's a really <laughs> good way to think about just how these things are how how you know stories get told and then after guan yu dies i think it goes over to Zhuge Liang, and then it's just clean up after he dies yeah uh, but uh so there's this huge propagandistic thing that you know becomes the dominant form of the story, um, and then in the past thirty years we have a single game company Koei that has released uh, two major series, Dynasty Warriors and uh, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, both of which have nine and like sixteen incarnations, um, <laughs> plus a whole bunch of spinoffs, including Dynasty Tactics, which I think is the only one that comes close to. Uh, getting to the others, and they have their own specific view of how these stories are told. Um, and that is, you know, Wu is blue, or Wei is blue, Wu is red, Shu is green. Uh, <laughs> Liu Bei has his specific mustache and his specific hat. Uh, <laughs> you know, and some of these things are come through the history, like Guan Yu is a minor deity, and like 
we know how he's supposed to look throughout the history that's become that, and that's incorporated in the games. But all these other characters, they're like, uh, so Zhang He uh, has claws. Uh, <laughs> He's part butterfly. He's part butterfly. <laughs> yeah, like that's just a thing. But we're going to get rid of that in the later games because that's weird. Uh, yeah. So you know, there's there's a whole bunch of quirks that they have basically decided are the way that this story is told. And then you also have the people who are trying to dive into all these things at once and like figure out what is the core of the story, what is real, what is history, what is the thing that should be taken. And one of the reasons that I'm so curious about Three Kingdoms Total War is just, like, this is by far the biggest non-Koei Three Kingdoms game ever to be made. How How much are they taking from them? How much are they making their own? How much are they trying to say what is the history? Like, Right. How is all that going to work? So, like, there's, there are all these different things kind of colliding with each other. Yeah, it seems like they're using the novel as a starting point, but also, it, uh, like, it's it feels like, especially if you're someone who's been around video games for a long time, there are such strong expectations about so many of these characters based on their Koei incarnations that you would almost have, even if there's just, just an offhanded aspect of... of one of these characters that isn't substantiated in the records or in the novel, but has become so cemented by the Koei games. And, and then they don't put that in there. People are going to be like, you know, what the hell? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how strongly that affects their decision-making, but I've got to imagine that it's on the board somewhere. Uh, well, I, I want to say that um, a lot of the major plot characters of of the book and and even the historical records, the historical records detail what the character, a lot of what the people look like, at least for the major people who are involved with the armies. And so, whenever they talk, the the armor usually gets stylized a little bit, but whenever they talk about like body dimensions or size of a person or something like that, a lot of that stuff is just coming straight from the historical records because, thankfully, at the time, way back when, the people who invented paper said we should use this shit and they started writing down every fucking detail and every single army had a a recording like a historian group uh sect and their whole job was just to fucking record every detail they could and the people who had the worst one were the shoe who it was horribly made up not not even being but this is like recorded the shoes historical records people were were not good they were they were it was mismanaged there was a lot of like money and and bullshit going on and so the the records of the characters for the way the people the generals that were close to Sao Sao and his life and even the the uh, gene later and 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 soon family soon family was especially uh studious and detailed in all their depictions about all their characters or all their people at the time so that's why Sun Tron has that hat in everything. And right, that's the hat. Everyone knows that has to be the hat. <laughs> you, you put a you put a uh, White Castle box and then you put a spear through it. And it's the hat. I don't. Oh. It is, that is, it's just. I mean, it's a cool hat. I guess I don't have hair, so I couldn't just wear every, it anyway. Everyone from the Sun family's uh, around a crave case. Just imagine it in your head right now. <laughs> and then the and then the arrows come in. It's it's a bad picnic. <laughs> God. He's like, I asked for these without our arrows. <laughs> What's going on? Please. Well, the, the other interesting thing that um, it certainly exists in, in Dynasty Warriors, um, and it seems like they've kind of gone the same direction, at least with the romance mode in, in Total War Three Kingdoms, uh, is that these these heroes tend to be kind of superhuman. Um, I'm curious, as, as, since you guys have 
have a little bit more of a background disentangling history from games from the novel like to what degree is is that um or, or where is the origination of the idea that you know maybe i can tell guan yu to strike the ground with his staff and he can like send a dozen soldiers flying in all directions a lot of the major generals you have to separate general from strategist and, and then also from like tertiary like characters that appear in dynasty warriors that don't have anything to do with combat um <laughs> to really like get down to like who was your combatants right who were your people who fought uh and those were like your frontline generals uh and, and and how successful they were and how intimidating they were and how powerful they were. That that varies depending on uh, who they're talking about and which book you're looking at. Uh, you know, Rowan touched a little bit about the the, the Sengo Z, uh, which is like the traditional Romance of the Three Kingdoms book. There's also the SGYY and the Tian, which is a different book. And there's a lot of books that are each one made by each faction that still exist to this day, so you can read about them. But there are a handful of people who, who kicked the living dog shit out of everyone that came near them and were regarded as such. And those are like the dudes who like nobody wanted to fuck with um and just a couple big ones uh guan yu was one and shang fei was one despite shang fei being a tremendous piece of shit he was also <laughs> an outstanding warrior and, and literally would go to the front of the fight drunk and just beat the shit out of people um <laughs> At the same time, people like Gan Ning, who was a terrible human, was an amazing uh, general, was an amazing soldier, and he trained basically all the Wu forces before they lost everything. Uh, and Gan Ning was considered to be like the peak general, like he was too good at his job. Um, on the Wei side, you had dudes like Sao Ren, who was considered to be a living god on the wayside. Uh, Sauron would always charge at the front of his cavalry. He would never let his men go behind him. And uh, in a famous altercation, a bunch of his guys get trapped trying to leave a castle by an enemy force that encamps them. And he just says, give me my fucking armor and my horse. And he rides out and he just plows into this these dudes and just starts killing people left and right and then his army like five minutes later is like we should probably get out there and help them and then he they come out and start <laughs> helping him out and start uh assisting in the fight and so there's like there are a handful of people who are a hundred percent dope as fuck like badass dudes and then are there's they a also, lot of do other they, just to interject just, really quick, to, I, just for clarity are they also just surrounded by badass dudes like is it this is this a situation where it's like you read and and you read that lubu you know killed x many people well i bet he killed a lot of people is it also that he had with him like just elite soldiers who were who were out with him or or was he just out there like killing peasant soldiers over and over and over again. Lubu did not have elite soldiers. Uh, Lubu had uh, pretty poorly managed bandit forces that he had paid money because his family had some change. Right, right, right. So, yeah, but, but I, yeah. I, don't even, I don't even mean his army, which I knew that about, right? I know yeah. that as a, in terms of, like, here is his army. But I mean in those specific cases where, you're, where you read that someone in this battle killed 82 men, right? It, did this one person kill 82 men, or is this a situation where... Though the record might be true that this person is getting the Bennett or getting the the record uh, in their favor, is that eighty two men or is that eighty two men spread between like him and his personal bodyguards? Like I just I would love the, the clarity on that. Yeah. So so for for in terms of like death counts and even army counts, a lot of that stuff is is um, is really difficult to pin down. A lot of it feels embellished by a lot of people because it seems like it's hard to believe that there was ten thousand people fighting. 
you know, a hundred people or whatever. But at the same time, uh, just because the Dynasty Warriors games have chosen this handful of dudes to be there or and ladies to be there, like signature, these are bad people or these are great people. It doesn't mean that the people that they were fighting at were any less strong. One of the things I really dislike in um, Dynasty Warriors, Samurai Warriors, Single Gubasra is they take characters who are important and people who were important and who people who are great warriors and they make them like the fodder general yeah, it sucks. who's like a fucking idiot and it's like imagine being the ancestor of some guy who literally like fought his ass off and then Kale Techno comes around and like we're gonna make this one the dorky one with the big nose and you're just like come on man that's my granddad's granddad and like that sucks so like I, I yeah there were a lot of great warriors and a lot of great generals and a lot of those dudes but a lot of these people were um the, their troops were not a lot to write home about normally like that's sure. the thing about building like these inner cadres of generals is because like most of the troop was peasantry and the behind peasantry you had cavalry and your cavalry was usually pretty good and then you had your archers and those guys were usually pretty good but ultimately once you ran out of cavalry and archery it just came down to like your personal contingents and your personal contingents might be a hundred 100 200 300 people at uh, at a large amount maybe right. as small as like 10 people 20 people i think Liu bay literally only traveled with 10 or 15 dudes um to protect him and so like it just depended like the people they kept closest to them were their best fighters and so the people that went out and died first were not the best fighters normally uh unless you are someone who rides at the front of your cavalry line um uh, Duan is is famously not a great general he he lost a lot of battles like he was not a competent dude he just got by because he's his family was was cousins to the Sao family because of Sasa's dad and so he got he should have been executed like twice and got away with it because he failed miserably on the battlefield well so did so did Zhuge Liang, and he's celebrated as the greatest strategist of yeah, the era. So, yeah. <laughs> someone's not dad just of the era, money. right? Yeah. Zhuge Liang is like is like if you made a game that was just the best strategist throughout history, he would be in that game because that is how big his the, the myth around him is. Right. You know? Right. It's like the entire second half of the novel is him invading Wei over and over, losing, and the novel being like, "But his retreat was so fucking awesome." <laughs> Yeah. You just own that shit. I got into it with someone when he attacks the mount uh, at Simi. When Simi digs in and plays defensively yeah. at the mountain, and they they're like, "Yeah, but Shuge Liang won that." And I was like, "No, he had to retreat." And they're like, "Yeah, but Simi didn't win." And I was like, "What is a win? Like he was defending, you were attacking. If you don't succeed in attacking the mountain, you have lost." I don't I don't God. see how retreating with a lot of people means that you did better. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, the the other thing I'm curious about is is like would would people at the time like the people who are actually writing down the the direct records while this was happening did they have like a, a belief that some of these guys were like a, a living minor god or is that something that's a literary embellishment from later or something that's made up by a video game company if you're taking the historical records and you're taking the documentation of what people like believed at that time period they i mean some of them absolutely believe that some of these guys were blessed and some of them believe that the Zhang brothers were were fucking wizards and they were throwing lightning and dog shit at each other uh <laughs> and so like and zuo si who like may or may not have actually existed as like a fortune teller the guy who found there's like a there's like a the belief that a um 
a mystic appeared before Sao like five times and fucking granted him a, a, provi- a vision of the future. There's there's all sorts of that stuff middled in there. And they absolutely, I mean, that's that's mysticism uh, was just as big a part of controlling the peasantry as giving them food. Right. Uh, you know. Then we're gonna have. By the way, we're gonna have so many shoe fanboys hating on this kind of Yeah, well, like, do we? We don't have any here, do we? Because like, no. I'm I'm the Wu fanboy. I'll take my knocks. I know what the fuck happened, <clears throat> but it doesn't it doesn't make me lose my faith and my and my love for my family. You know, Wu world. You already know what it is. The guy um, the army. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, exactly. I mean, I really like Sichuan food. I don't know if that counts, <laughs> but uh, I'm just, I'm just here yeah. to represent uh, Ma Tang. Oh. You know what, Montang is all right. Shout out to Montang. <laughs> Just yeah. hanging out in the corner. Yep. I don't mm-hmm. mind Montang. It's his son that I take uh, a lot of umbrage with. Yeah. I think I kind of like the UN. Based on their abilities and how they're presented in the Three Kingdoms, um, Total War dockets, I think, I think uh, at least playstyle-wise, I kind of like Yuan Shao and, and Yuan Shu, but... Uh, what is there? How are they being? How are they being systematized in in Total War? Um, well, like Yuan Shao starts as like the head of the coalition, which is kind of interesting because you you kind of know it's going to fall apart. Um, it, it's not it's also like true. Can, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like you can like win the game by being like, all right, I'm just going to keep all these vassals and annex. <laughs> um, so I think that's going to be a really interesting start. With uh, he has. Some some interesting abilities to to influence other leaders that aren't quite as like devious mastermind flavored like the stuff Cao Cao gets, but it's more like he can he can build a he can build a strong team and uh, kind of how Liu Bei has his buddies on the battlefield. It seems like Yuan Shao is going to be like you 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 have your buddies on the campaign map that are helping you beat people up. And then they, uh, Yuan Shu, I think, gets some really interesting story event dilemmas regarding the Imperial Seal and stuff that sounds kind of uh, interesting as well. So, Oh, so this starts with Yuan Shao. You start not with his father. You start with the son, Yuan Shao, and his argument with his brothers. Okay. I'm just looking it up. Yeah. That's it. I mean, I like the, the I like the design of the character and how they've taken the uh, the most commonly used trope is to make him embellished in gold and make him because he was very rich and that's how he's able to have enough money to pay for all the armies to come together to fight Dong Shuo. Um, but like, I do like that he is still kind of golden emblazoned and his armor his armor is very high quality and you can tell that it's it's very nice and uh, and I think it's going to be interesting. He definitely is like a guy who who was really relying on the fact that he had more money than other people and the fact that he was more well known than everybody else as a means to like i should be in charge because nobody knows who the fuck any of you are (laughs) (laughs) so kind of the to to continue sort of on that same topic but um we rowan left me uh, a note about you know you guys would know more about this than i do because i don't have a lot of experience with r3k or even with dynasty tactics um, but it seems like they all tend to focus on on one thing that they do well or, or like a couple things that they do well. Um, I'm curious why you guys think that is and what you think that maybe future games, including Total War Three Kingdoms, could do to model the period in a way where, you know, previous attempts to do so have fallen short. So, yeah, this was a thing back in the, the heyday of 
uh, the PS2 era where uh, the Dynasty Tactics games were vibrant and, uh, you know, there was obviously new Dynasty Warriors and pretty regular new Romance of Three Kingdoms games was that I would play one and be like, okay, I'm having fun with Dynasty Tactics here, but I could really go for some grander strategy. And I'd go over to Romance of Three Kingdoms and be like, this is fun, but it's really easy and... I sort of miss the personality and go play Dynasty Warriors and then, you know, want to go play Dynasty Tactics. And, like, the, the joke I put in the, the notes that I wrote was, like, is this a conspiracy by Koei to make, like, a bunch of 8 out of 10 games so that you buy each one instead of making the one that really gets everything right? But I think this is also a good time to sort of get into, like, what these games do and why they're interesting. We've talked about Romans of Three Kingdoms to, to a decent amount here. Um, but... The thing that I always, you know, I liked the sort of just grand sweep of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games, but they always bugged me because they had such a hard time getting the history right. That is exactly it, yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is a thing that I, I don't actually think I've talked about this on this show in a while, if I ever have, but one of the standards that I have for a historical strategy game is if you ran this game by itself, you know, a hundred times, a thousand times, or whatever, would it have a historical result ever is that even possible and i've never played one of the romance of three kingdoms games that did like there are two huge uh two huge things that are incredibly difficult to model for a strategy game that's built on factions the first is liu bei who starts the post dong zhuo uh part of the story in like the northeast part of china builds up a little empire runs afoul of tao tao Everyone scatters to the winds. He joins Cao Cao. Guan Yu joins Yuan Shao. Then they bail on all their people. Or no, I have that backwards. Liu Bei joined Yuan Shao. Um, but anyway, then they bail, and they're just like wandering to the south, run into another guy, Liu, Liu Biao. And Liu Bei's like, hey, I can run this thing better than you. And eventually sort of takes over, gets fucked up again, then manages to get a little tiny beef in the south from which he takes over the entire southeast part of the country and finally has an empire to match everybody else's but if you're doing this in a faction-based game you have a faction that gets destroyed multiple times here and you know the romans of three kingdoms games never were able to model that they tried to do it with events but you know we've all seen what event based games can go like that takes out the systemic joy you know we say that in the older you know europa universalists and in many of the romans of three kingdoms games and the other thing is the uh uh collapse of way and it being just supplanted by gene which like it happens and like i never saw any of that in any romance of the three kingdoms game that wasn't event triggered so i always had an issue with these games in terms of like i got the feel of China that I sort of wanted, but there was always some like really tense strategic meat to it that I was missing. There was some element of chaos that uh, I, I just was not getting. So I've, I've played, you know, four or five of them and enjoyed them, but they've never felt like top tier strategy games for me. I think that's totally accurate. And, and specifically, I think one of the things that it, it, the thing it does really well is simulating a Wednesday. Yeah. Right? It's just like someday in the in the first quarter, first third of of the period, especially where you know you 
you as a player, the events that kick things off, the Yelter Rebellion, uh, Dong Zhuo, like that, so when that stuff is, is firing, it doesn't feel bad because you know those are big events that set up the stage and in the back of your mind. Just like playing a, a 4X or a grand strategy game, you go, okay, but it's going to diverge in big, interesting ways once I hit the mid-game. And then, like, it, it can, but mostly doesn't, but it doesn't feel good to just see the events continue to happen or maybe some major power disappears and that means the event won't fire. But then there's nothing else that takes its place. And by then, you've, you've kind of repeated the, that Wednesday over and over again. And it's just like, hmm, I kind of want that feeling of something. Like, again, I, I go to like Crusader Kings uh, 2 a lot here. But like the way that events are triggered there are not – they're not scripted events that say, oh, this is the thing that happened. They are pulled from your uh, – a set of scripted events that relate to your character's traits and your your whatever, your your kingdom or your, your – uh, uh, what is the word? Your domains, uh, you know, traits and, and, and people who live there. Um, those things will fire and it can feel very systemic and unique and, and generated and not just something, you know, from a list of specific options that, that, have to, that will fire when it triggers. And I weirdly think my solution to this is not make the systemic stuff better. Like, I do want that. But the game that I want that doesn't exist in the Three Kingdoms world is something linear is something story driven is something i mean like dynasty warriors are already obviously starts in that direction but like i would take the visual novel or the the jrpg um not that there were never any jrpgs set in in the the romance of the three, the three kingdoms period certainly even going back to the nes there were but like something that gave me maybe even more vignette focused than that, right? Um, that just like, hey, here are six really interesting stories presented to you in the course of, over the course of two or three hours in a sort of uh, you know telltale game adventure game style or something like that. That really paid attention to the things also that these games n- often don't, which is like, what's the court look like? What's it feel like in a, a major city here? What do, what's the rural area feel like? Um, paint me pictures of these people in these places. Tell me, like, help me hear what the music sounds like, what the fashion looks like. Bring me into that space in in those other smaller ways, and just give me those specific events so that I'm not tapping my foot waiting for them to show up, uh, the, the way I do in the strategy game, and so that they're not like turned into something that lets them exist in a 3D beat-em-up the way they do in a Dynasty Warriors game. So, this is interesting because uh, one of my solutions was to go more systemic. <laughs> Well, I would also love um, yeah. that, but that's the that's my that's what I always say. I always uh, say, just give me give Paradox yeah. the license, you know. Yeah. Uh, if here's a thing out for game designers who want to make a Three Kingdoms game, uh, my solution was always to have a fame rating because the mm. thing that fucks characters up in the novel is when they get famous and they start believing their own shit. It happens to Lu Bu, it happens to Guan Yu, it happens to <laughs> Zhuge Liang. Uh, but especially Guan Yu, because he's treated as this good guy, but the way he dies is he's just a total jackass. Like He's like, I'm pretty much the king of this province. I'm not going to have my kid marry some woo bastard. Like I'm just going to be a dick, and everyone's going to want to kill me, and then they will. He gets uh, dad of the year award on that one. Yeah. Uh, God. So my, my solution was you use... You have people with stats and they level up and go on through the games, you know, like a Crusader Kings. But there's also this fame uh, thing that multiplies everything, including the negative stats. So when you get Guan Yu to the level where everybody (laughs) knows he's the greatest warrior in the kingdom, 
he's at the top, the most famous guy, his arrogance rating, which is totally irrelevant before then, would make him start fucking up. Um, so that, yeah, that was, that was the thing that I wanted to do with the system. Um, the other thing uh, that I think you're sort of getting at, Austin, is that the, the narrative, the overall grand sweeping narrative of who wins the war doesn't really have a climax, no, what, what, that's true. Also, just with what the kingdoms are, right? Like, right. If we design, if you, if the four of us sat down and said, "Let's rewrite the three kingdoms. Let's write our romance of the three kingdoms," we would immediately make Wu more interesting, right? Immediately, right. because Shu and, and Wei make perfect sense with each other. In 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 the, I agree with everyone here that the 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 Shu love is propagandistic, but as a storyteller, I recognize the value of having villains and heroes. But the the Wu, even in the romance, don't really fit there's not like a unique characteristic and every game struggles to give them a thing you know um so yeah i think i think what 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 really cements that is what kind of took the woo down and it it sucks and because when you see all these great armies you're like fuck these are gonna be awesome and then you see how way and shoot go at it over and over again and like woo is so plagued with internal problems and so plagued with catastrophe that continues to destroy them internally that they never get off the ground they never get to the point that they're kicking ass and taking names because show you dies way young and he's their best yeah, guy it's such a fucking bummer L- dude L- he's my fave L- he's my absolute L- fave Su, Lu ming show you they have a history of their best guys just fucking dying and then Sun Tse comes along. He's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking carry on for my dad. I'm gonna, go, oh god, I'm dead." And then it's like, "Oh fuck, get to Sun Chuan." And Chuan's like 13, and he's like, "I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, guys." And so the court lords start manipulating and start taking over, and they start pushing out, and they start sabotaging amazing generals like Deng Feng, who are like these fucking icons of the the the, the region, and they're like these are the guys that could have saved Wu, but your fucking little finger spider asshole spy lords <laughs> are coming in behind and just fucking it all up, and they, you know, they think that they're going to be good. They think they're, oh, we got this. We'll get rid of the generals, and then we still have the army, and we'll still win the fights, and it's like, that's not how this shit works. So, uh, what I was talking about, there not being a climax, it's like at the start of the story that, you know, China shatters and there are all these different miniature warlords and a few of them slowly get bigger and then they have these gigantic battles all in like the first 20, 30 years of the civil wars. And then they get to the Three Kingdoms era and for the next 50 years, these Three Kingdoms are just basically staring across rivers at each other and mountain ranges and walls and like (laughs) um i think it was romance of three kingdoms eight it might have been ten i don't remember which one that i played but it did this really well where if you just got to a point where you had a wall or a gate um no enemy army would ever be able to attack it as long as it was reasonably well stocked with generals who had men and so you had to wait until it was 50 years later and all the generals died and there were not systemic replacements <laughs> for them before someone would ever bust through a gate. And it was boring <laughs> as hell, but it was historically accurate. Like, you go through <laughs> each month and you wait for someone to attack you, and then you win easily if they do, just like Sima Yi beat Kung Ming every single time he attacked mm-hmm. the north. Like it, so, you know... All of these games kind of struggle with, okay, how do we end? It's, it's just all a mid-game. Uh, there's a really amazing beginning game, and then there's a mid-game that just lasts forever. Uh, so maybe Paradox should have the license, and that is sort of their thing. 
There's something to be said about throwing a little uh, Dynasty Warriors pizzazz in the middle of some shit. Well, what if this guy could fly? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the way that Total War seems to be handling it is uh, they're sort of... From what I asked the developers and the response they gave me, it seems like it sounds like it's very similar to Realm Divide in Shogun 2, where you'll start with your little warlord. And once your faction gets big enough, two other powerful warlords on the map uh, or uh, will declare themselves emperor once you declare yourself emperor. And then it becomes kind of a, a three way civil war to the end, which I think that will actually be fun um, if if it's over fairly quickly, which it seems like it will be, but it's not a historical outcome because I don't think you're going to be seeing these long stalemates between the three kingdoms. It's going to be pretty much, okay, we're in the end game now, and I've got to go beat up all these guys within like the next 20 years and win the game. I, I have to ask, does, is the gen just not in the game? Or the gen, does the game always end before that we get to that point I, historically? Without da, breaking an NDA? Uh, my, my strong suspicion is that the game will not go long enough for you to encounter the gin. Huh. That's, I, that's yeah. interesting. I have no idea. I My guess would be that it, like, I don't think it's going to not have the gin. I think there's going to be opportunities for, you know, major advisors to take over from each other. I think it might be entirely sure. systemic, and hopefully it's systemic well done in a way that the Romance of the Three Kingdoms never were. And I can actually tell you exactly, based on information that's not under NDA, there are five turns per year, and they said that it's uh, going to be about a 200 to 300 turn campaign, I believe, at the preview event. So we're talking about a 60-year time frame starting in 189. So yeah, we're not going to get to the, the, the time that the djinn arose historically, at least, unless you really take your time. All right, now's the time to start coming up with the best pun for how you phrase the DLC for the djinn army. <laughs> Who's going to get that headline? So, you know, after the Romance of Three Kingdoms game, unless we have more to say about those... No, sorry, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to find the pun. It's fine, we can keep sorry. going. <laughs> I think that, I think that, um, sorry, you, you had said that, like, you, as far as, like, the games that you guys wanted, you, Austin, and, and Rowan wanted, like, have you guys played any, like, have you played Kessen? Yeah, I played Kessen. Kessen 2 is the one that is... You know, according to Kessen Romans 2... Three Kingdoms, right? Yeah, according to Kessen 2, canonically, Minghuo poplocked his entire army, does it, if you discover oh them God. in one of the missions. I... <laughs> oh, great. Good. <laughs> but there's also, like, a... Romance of the Three Kingdoms 2 and 3 were narratively driven tactical huh. RPGs. And they have the mobile remake on the on your phones if you want to play a gacha game with romance. But it's it's a it is a tactical narrative RPG in the same vein as Langrisser or Final Fantasy Tactics or something like that. And so they follow the strict um timeline of Sao Sao. And so everything happens in Sao Sao. And then as you play through the game, you unlock the side stories of like Xiaohe Yuan going off and, and unfortunately dying and, uh, you know, all that other stuff. And so, you know, if you want it, it's on mobile and they redid it with HD sprites and you can play it. But it is a fun uh, game for a little while until the uh, gotcha curve hits you and then you have to spend money to progress. I, I got that on my phone based on you talking about how much you were playing it and the home interface is one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. There's like <laughs> 15 different <laughs> buttons around the screen that all do some sort of free-to-play thing that I'm just like, I, I, this is this is scary. I'm it's, going somewhere else. It's pretty brutalistic, I think, for people who aren't like, I want this. 
Yeah. It's trying to simulate the uh, the character select screen of a Dynasty Warriors <laughs> game or the feeling you had when you first learned that there was such a thing as the Three Kingdoms and you didn't know where to begin. Yeah. <laughs> Except that half of the buttons also cost more money. Oh, right. Fuck. <laughs> no, uh, I, did, I just figured out what I want as a Dynasty Warriors game, and it's just a game where Pang Tong, when he supposedly dies, he disappears <laughs> and then he has an adventure, and you just play through his adventure. It'll <laughs> uh, be good. That'd uh, be worthwhile. Yeah. So uh, the Dynasty Warriors games, like these are these are interesting games from a strategic perspective. We talked about this a little bit. I, TJ, were you on the show where we did the State of Decay thing? No, I yeah, okay. I never played State of Decay. Yeah, so we did a show based around State of Decay 2 last year, which was sort of games that aren't strategy games that have strategic components to them. And we were basically just talking shit about all the, how these games were all bad. I really did not like State of Decay 2. Um, and then we started trying to figure out, like, okay, what games actually do have good strategic components that aren't strategy games? And I was like, I think, actually, Fraser had played one of the spin-offs that was like a dynasty warrior i forget which one dynasty warriors empires no no Probably. like a oh, oh. like a totally different thing it had like blood oh. in the title or something um hmm. a Rochi? no no, no. I, i'm not even sure it was Koei. it was just a, oh i'm just sorry um, brian and i are like deep, digging deep into our knowledge <laughs> of this style <laughs> of game yeah you said spin-off and i opened up a wikipedia tab no, it's, it's like, like hmm, show me all the Musou games it was, nine nights <laughs> <laughs> it was like a genre spinoff and not like a a setting spinoff. So it was it was that sort of beat 'em up. But anyway, like that made me realize, oh, the Dynasty Warriors games are like these really strange and I think good hybrids of action and strategy when they're working. There are a lot of times that they don't work, but like when they are clicking, it's a thing that I really enjoy doing. And um, one of the key things that I uh, I wrote this on the list of questions to ask was like, I realized that in addition to all that Civil War narrative stuff and all the folklore and things that we were talking about earlier, they also turn all these characters into superheroes. Like they all oh, have yeah. their costumes. Their costumes are based on which team they're on. Sometimes they switch teams. Sometimes they have team ups. That's always exciting. Uh, so Crossover the- specials, splash pages, the whole thing. Right. It's all there. Right. Beach episode. Uh, <laughs> Which one's Cyclops? <laughs> They're all Cyclops. Oh, fuck. They're all assholes. Uh, so, yeah, now the- we're really going to activate Rowan. Rowan is going to be so mad now. <laughs> no, I like Cyclops as the asshole. I dislike him when he's the goody two-shoes. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I, I'm into uh, uh, Death Squad Cyclops. Gotcha. You, you like Cyclops with a, with a little stubble. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the Joss Wade in Cyclops where he loses his laser beams and he just runs around with a gun shooting ho- ho- hallucinations, that's my Cyclops. Um, Hashtag not my Cyclops. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, welcome to a podcast with me. It was just like verbal tics trying to find your way through any conversation back to a salient point. Oh, God. Um so, uh, yeah, so there's this feeling of, like, being the superhero in the Dynasty Warriors, and some of that comes through when you're reading, you know, we, we've talked about a few of the instances, I think the big one that Dynasty Warriors specifically tries to model is um, 
Zhao Yun at uh, the battle where they're leading the refugees out, whose name is blank and blanky at the moment. Um, and he like realizes that they've left Liu Bei's son behind, even though that son's a total dick and they shouldn't have rescued him. But he decides, <laughs> nope, to ride around the entire army and rescue the son. And it's you know the story is just basically here he finds another officer and he kicks his ass. Here he finds another officer and kicks his ass. And you know. D- the whole Dynasty Warriors game is just this idea of like running around as this superhero doing all these things while there is a bit of a strategic component to it. Um, and then there's also the butt rock. We cannot forget that. That's a, a God. absolutely God central part of the whole mythos. And I think that works. Like it's, it says this is absolutely ridiculous. These are superheroes beating each other up, like in the way that, you know, the, the Deadpool movies added to the superhero genre what was missing, or Thor Ragnarok added like this absolute ridiculousness that just makes it all so much more appealing. I think that I think that like when you talk about like the the Thor movie, the Deadpool movie, literally they're just catching up yeah, to right? like to wushu films and co- like like martial arts films in general. Mm-hmm. It's like they're literally they've been so far behind. They're thirty years behind fucking uh, heroes on Mount Zangdong, or I can't remember the exact title, but like it's like literally a movie where a guy like punches a dragon in half, and it's live action <laughs> puppets, and like like they're just catching up Love to that it. stuff. And it's so silly, but it's so like good because it feels like you can you can all feel the sound of the guitar riff at the beginning of the cinematic for dynasty warriors uh-huh where it's like it's in my heart right now yes 100%. but like is this is it, to some degree is this the fact that there is finally an audience who and i say this as someone who's like all the way off on marvel films at this point but who's happy that there's an audience for whom let's just have some fun and have butt rock play and have thor be hot and have a hammer and be surrounded by other hot people and that's fine like let's just have that hair down moment you know yeah i just want to watch the highlights i just want to see the biggest (laughs) moments back to back to back to back i want you know i want all that crazy nonsense and like i think that the dynasty warriors games are are amazing at doing that like honestly like and the strategy thing so my favorite 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 thing on on earth in the dynasty warriors games is when they include hypotheticals that are fun (laughs) and goofy and ridiculous because i think that like that is like for for you uh austin a woo fan like you need the hypotheticals. i need Desperately. You desperately, desperately need them for anyone who's like upset about the way Shao Ba fucking turns out, and after his dad <laughs> dies, you need the hypotheticals to be like, no, he didn't defect to Shu because he's not a fucking idiot, uh, and he doesn't die stupidly, or you know, all that stuff. Like, so I love and 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 integrating that stuff into strategy and the way you play out the map, right? Like, the map is like, here's the map. You need to save this person. You need to go here, and then you're like, well, what's this? What's this fucking? What's this weird tunnel over here? I'm just gonna run down that with my horse that goes 80 miles an hour and you you skyrocket down there and it's like oh i found the 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 ambush waiting in hideout and then you beat the ambush and it's like oh you've unlocked a hypothetical what if show you didn't get uh sick and die on the battlefield and he was able to lead Wu to fucking victory and then they give you five or six different uh stories and then you you play through that for the catharsis that is the fucking cinematic at the end where they're all alive and they give oh, a so thumbs happy. up and they're so the sun happy. is setting but, the, but really isn't the sun rising Sima the brain didn't fall out of his eye socket or whatever <laughs> 
Um, I just realized something, actually, in thinking about Dynasty Warriors specifically, which is they actually did the thing I want, which is uh, they did Samurai Warriors. Samurai Warriors Spirit of Sanada is actually a JRPG. Not a JRPG, but it's like it's a, there's a single story that runs through that has JRPG-style cutscenes all the way through it that is fo- that's focused specifically on the Sanada family in, in uh, the Warring States period of Japan and completely, you know, uh, fictionalizes a, a bunch of stuff as always. But it is just, we're going to follow this one family. You're going to get sad about parents. You're going to get sad about death. You're going to kill a bunch of people on a battlefield. But it's going to have the focus that none of those Samurai Warriors games have otherwise. And I'd love for them to just bring that to Dynasty Warriors and Three Kingdoms. I, it was wild because Spirit of Sanada came out before Dynasty Warriors 9. And it felt like it, just, it was an experiment in focus. And then Dynasty Warriors 9 came out and it was the exact opposite of that. <laughs> an experiment in total lack of focus. Yes. I was going to say, it's interesting that you're, you're talking about these what-ifs, because it does seem like uh, Total War is kind of trying to do some of that, where like every one of the warlords yeah. has their initial starting dilemma. Um, like for Lu Bei, you can, you can kind of decide if you want to uh, rally to Dao Qian and help him fight Cao Cao, or you can you know tell Dao Qian to, to F off, and you can kind of maybe become friends with Cao Cao early on. So it seems like every every playable leader is going to have at least one of these initial things where you can it'll tell you okay this is how the novel went you can follow that or you can take a path that goes off in a completely different direction which to some degree is the same thing that Rowan has been talking about that I'm also critical about which is event driven narratives in grand strategy games sometimes they work well sometimes they don't depending on what you're looking for. Um, but I do think it, it could be interesting to see how much they facilitate a curated alternate history experience uh, like we're talking about with the, the hypotheticals um, versus just being another th- pop-up that forces you to decide on taking a diplomatic action in the context of a grand strategy game. Well, you know, when you have the... Uh, event-driven thing that leads to different systems. Like, you know, we had that Liu Bei choice where the reaction was, like, if you decide to defend Taokian, he likes you by 50 more points, and uh, you know, Tao Tao likes you by 50 less points, which leads you to probably having an alliance with one and probably having war with the other, but if you don't do that, then the system doesn't go in that direction. So, you know, there's... Uh, that's I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, to, you know, guide alternate histories day on the path if sure. you trust your systemic uh systemic model or whatever yeah anything else uh anything else we want to cover as far as three kingdoms as a gaming setting hopes dreams uh well we gotta strike, talk about the best ones bring back strike force uh <laughs> i think it was great i think the art oh. was cool uh, I didn't listen. I hate everything about Strike Force's <laughs> gameplay, but okay. everything outside of the gameplay—it's the most beautiful. superheroes. It's it is it is Dragon Ball like oh. di- Dragon Ball Dynasty Warriors as much as that could possibly be a thing. It really people is. don't know. Like, please go look it up if you've ever wanted to see <laughs> any of those people go Super Saiyan. You can <laughs> they instantly. All, they all go Super Saiyan. They all have like Ming Huo gets like forty feet tall and he gets like cannons for arms. <laughs> I don't it's know. ridiculous. I don't it's know if so much. Koei Tecmo was like high that day. It's so good. It's so much. So, I mean, 
my favorites that we haven't gotten to talk about the Dynasty Tactics games. Oh, I love uh, yeah, that. Please, can you, so here's the thing. I, I played Dynasty Tactics 1 for five hours and then loaned it to somebody and never got it back. I never went back and played it. Can you pitch me on, and tell me why? Tell me what I've missed, Rowan. Okay, please. so first of all, we're, we, it's got like a lot of the aesthetic stuff of the Dynasty Warriors games. Like The character models are all very similar. You will fe- instantly feel at home with you know all these, all these characters. It does not have the butt rock. Uh, but it Boo. it does have really great music on its own. Um, so, like, yeah, there's an immediate aesthetic appeal. But the big thing about them that they do better than any other tactics game that I played, except maybe Disgaea, but I never got far enough into Disgaea to really uh, do this, is uh, they're all about setting up, like, little special moves that your uh, all your each general is a unit. Yeah, team attacks. Team so, attacks. Uh, I love it. So, you know, each character has like four or five slots that they can have these special moves on. And there's like charge, which push you move forward one square and hit an enemy and that enemy gets pushed back one square, right? And if that goes in front of another general of yours, like if you push that enemy back one square and you have another hero hero with Pierce right next to them and Pierce is selected on the menu, then they will charge through three squares and do more damage that way and the combos do extra damage so it stacks over and over and like the deeper you get into the game the more you know your armies the more uh different skills you get you can do these like 10 unit combos when you have or you could do like 12 unit combos when you only have 10 units in a fight uh and it's just like setting that up and knocking it down is one of the best feelings i've ever had at any sort of strategy game um, and, you know, it's it's in a setting that I also really like. Uh, it has trouble, and oh, this is what I was going to talk about with the Dynasty Warriors game. It has trouble leading to an ending. It has trouble figuring out a climax. Like, all of these have trouble figuring out climaxes. Um, but I think it does better than most all the others just in, like, setting up these uh, designed levels for the big climaxes where you're like, you know, fighting the very elite Wu forces up in their castle with the, your army that you only have one shot at, and it's just you know a blast to, play to d- try to do. Dynasty Tactics 2 did a much better job of that. In Dynasty Tactics 1, you could basically just fight the battle, lose, but do damage, where Dynasty Tactics 2 actually like tried to make sure your campaign was all working. You could also play as Lu Bu in that one. That's, that was a fun campaign because you always died. It was like a choose-your-own-adventure with no... Uh, no good ending um but yeah uh just the the combo system and the three kingdom system were always a blast yeah i gotta jump back i gotta say that i agree with everything you just said dynasty tactics 2 is phenomenal game and if you haven't played it yet and you have a ps2 or a ps2 compatible device you should buy it on amazon used for 7.99 because it's fucking fantastic (laughs) and the combat is hella good and like the combo system he's i mean uh, i would use a lot more cuss words to describe my excitement about it but like it's really (laughs) satisfying it's the end of the show do it it's so fucking satisfying when like an enemy general's talking shit and then you're you've set up dominoes you're like it's like turn 12 and you've been playing 8d chess against this asshole (laughs) just so that like when he puts one unit in your fucking face you're like it's like a soccer match like it's literally like you know that scene in shaolin (laughs) 
soccer where they just <laughs> fucking become inspired. It's that scene, but with some asshole. And you're just you're just fucking bicycle kicking this dude's horse. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels it feels so good. It, you're doing like. Forty thousand casualties to units that have like eight thousand people great. in them. Yeah, everyone's already dead. And the casualty numbers are still going up, and you're like, I'm pretty sure that dude's dead, but fuck it. Uh, and you know, you and you also get these increasingly intricate skills as your your characters get you know better. Like I mentioned, charge and pierce. These are the basic things, like hit an enemy and push it back, or go through an enemy. But there's also like pincer movements where you yeah, like you get pull your guys from the opposite side of the map have them like go 10 squares across and hit them with both of you know your god Ning and your uh lu ming units that just like fuck them up out of nowhere because it's the 10th part of the combo and you've set it up to be ideal yeah there's some amazing pincer stuff with like using uh fire archers to drive people out of the woods they immediately get pushed out of the woods because the woods are on fire and they are by cool. proxy on fire and so yeah. they get pushed out and then they're pushed out right into your fucking cavalry who proceed to just trample them <laughs> like it has all of these really beautiful they're simple right they're simple strategic concepts but there's so many of them and they're all executed so cleanly and i've just i've never understood why that game isn't like fucking fan- famous I don't know. Like it should be like for tactics fans, like or for strategy game fans. It also these things sort of feel like you know one of the the dreams of playing the game that you read in the books when you know Sima Yi or uh, Zhou Yu are like developing these awesome strategies that will wipe out a much stronger yeah. enemy in one thing. Like that's what you're doing. You're doing that, and it's it feels natural. It's like escalating slowly. It's sort of like um, a really good collectible card game or you know a hearthstone feeling like when you finally get the deck where you have all the synergies you wanted it sort of feels like a deck building kind of thing uh and yeah it's just a blast um it doesn't have a very good overall strategic arc to it and this is you know why i don't like say it's one of the greatest games of all time or anything but in terms of a tactical engine it's one of my favorites all right. Well, I am sure that we'll be talking more about the Three Kingdoms period later in the year, since we do have Total War Kingdoms or Total War Three Kingdoms coming up. Uh, Total War Kingdoms was a totally different thing, um, and uh, that's that's one of the bigger strategy releases of the year. Uh, so I am sure that that this will not be the last you hear of us from that. Um, but until then, uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network and produced by Michael Hermes. You can uh, discuss the episode with other strategy fans on the Idle forums at idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. Uh, you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at 3MA. And also, we are supported by listeners like you, as always. Uh, so if you would like to uh, contribute to the continued running of the show you can go on over to patreon.com slash 3ma um anything uh anything you guys like to uh plug that you're working on at the moment uh brian austin yeah as always you just find everything i do at waypoint.vice.com and twitter.com slash austin underscore walker i guess like the sure thing is, there's anything really that's that's related in this in this scope. Not really. I'm kind of in between strategy things right now, so I feel like it would be disingenuous to pretend otherwise. <laughs> uh, if you're in Atlanta and you like food or beer, then you can come to Battle and Brew and see me. Uh, and if you're in Atlanta and you don't like food and beer, uh, go away. 
<laughs> I figured out one thing. We just ran um, a review uh, by Eric Van Allen of Wargroove, a game that has some interesting tactics stuff in it. It's a tactics game. It's an advanced war kind of would-be successor. So people should go read Sweet. that review. I'm curious what folks over here in the, in the world of Three Moves Ahead think about Wargroove is what I will say. I think that's our next show. So. Yeah, it's on the docket, actually. Yeah, very next thing on the docket. Perfect. Roll anything uh, you wanted to plug this week? Yeah, I highly recommend that none of you pursue Lubu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with that, uh, we will bid you all a good evening. <laughs>